Hello, all you beautiful light-filled souls. Welcome to your awakening. My name is Daniel Lovett, and you're about to witness a conversation I had with Aaron Abke uh, about Christ consciousness, about the role that near-death experiences and our research into them have played into our spiritual development and awakening to reality, and also about reincarnation. So enjoy and subscribe. Stay tuned for future episodes if you like what you're watching. All right, welcome everyone uh, to Sozo Talk Radio. Uh, my name is Daniel Lovett. I'm your host, and I today I've got on the line Aaron Abke from Boulder, Colorado. And uh, Aaron, uh, he, he podcasts a lot about spiritual topics. Uh, found him on YouTube, and I've been blessed by some of his material. Uh, so, Aaron, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, man. Thanks a lot for having me. Looking forward to chatting. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. I'd like to start out with just some questions. Uh, just getting to know you. Um, now, I understand you grew up as a preacher's kid. Tell us what that was all like, and growing up in the church, and... Yeah. Yeah. I grew up as a pastor's kid and, uh, I loved it. I had a really great experience being a pastor's kid, which is rare. Um, <laughs> uh, pretty much all the pastor's kids I've ever known did not enjoy being a PK, but I was the rare exception because my dad was a PK and he grew up in a Nazarene denomination where his, you know, his hair had to be slicked back. He could only wear a white t-shirt and jeans to school, you know, very strict. Couldn't watch movies. That was the devil's box. Couldn't uh, go to the swimming pool. That was mixed bathing. Um, couldn't do just about anything. That was fun. So he said, I'm never doing this to my kids, you know. So my parents gave us a lot of freedom, my sister and I. And they didn't put the pressure on us of like, hey, you're the, the pastor's son. You have to be a good example of our family and everything. Because my grandpa did that to my dad. And he had like an ulcer by age 11 from stress. And, you know, so he learned that this is not the way I want to raise my kids. So I, I really grew up in a denomination that emphasized all the right things. You know, it was the love of God, the grace of God, the forgiveness of God. And, and Jesus was the, the vision. And it wasn't this, you know, overly pedestalizing or worshiping of the Bible, but it was, you know, Christ. Hmm. And so the messages were always about love and grace and acceptance. And my dad never preached. I never heard him preach a sermon about hell or the rapture or, any of the things that I, I came to eventually reject from the traditional religion of Christianity, it was, it was all the good stuff. And so when I got my first job as a worship pastor at a very fundamentalist church, um, I was forced to face a lot of aspects of the Christian religion that didn't, definitely did not resonate with me or the God I knew in my heart, mm -hmm. um, such as the idea of like women being inferior to men, for example. That was one of the first ones that I had to face. And it was like, you know, life was, God was not giving me a choice to run from it anymore. It was like, look, do you believe this or not? Are mm -hmm. women inferior to men in any way? And my heart said, no, absolutely not. All of God's creation is equally valid. And then it was the next thing, you know, everyone's talking about hell all the time. We've got to save all these people. They're going to be barbecued forever. Mm -hmm. And it was, God was like, do you believe this is me? Do you believe that I would do that? Yeah. And I said, no, I do not. That does not resonate in my heart of what you are or what love is. So I quit my job. I said, I'm going to have to find my own truth because, you know, Christ resonates with me in every way. Mm 
Mm-hmm. But like Gandhi said, I love your Christ, but not your Christians. Your Christians mm-hmm. are so unlike your Christ. And if it were not for Christians, I would have become a Christian. <laughs> and that was kind of where I found myself. Um, so, you know, I have a video on my channel that talks about that journey uh, for me called why I left Christianity for Jesus. But what it was, was that I really found Christ in a, such a new and, and transcendent way that I never saw in the church because the church is, has such a locked down concept of Jesus or of Christ that they keep him in this little box of, Oh, he's just the suffering savior. He came to be murdered on our behalf. And if that's what you believe about Christ, then that's the only way you'll ever relate to Christ. But really what Christ is, and this is what, you know, the mystics knew and and wrote about is something so much deeper than religion can possibly represent something so much deeper than the symbolism that religion gives us, which in and of itself is great, right? Like, all the symbols of religion are inherently good because they're pointing to a truth. And I think the, uh, the way that religion goes south is just that they worship the symbols rather than looking at where the symbols point, which is something that, um, that deeply transcends anything that we can understand with our mind. And so to worship what our mind understands is really the problem. And that's what I realized I had been doing uh, my, all my life growing up. So my root intention and desire was always pure, which is to know God. And so I finally was able to, to recognize what the problem was and find a more authentic path. Oh, that's lovely. Well put. <laughs> Thank you. I love it. Um, so yeah, you, I, I heard also that you went to Oral Roberts University and majored in music there. What were some of the highlights or best, best things about that season in your life? Highlights or best things about that season was definitely a lot of the, the things I saw that I didn't, I knew I didn't resonate with. I saw a lot of um, Mm. the, the toxicity behind the um, Christian culture, you know, where it's like, Oh, we just do these things because we do them. But I saw that there's no real essence behind it for us anymore. Like the, the meaning and purpose of everything we do has been lost on us. And we're just doing these things by rote. We're doing these things uh, out of habit rather than out of passion. And that started to bother me a lot. And so um, I got really, really obsessed with a couple of things during that time. One was acapella music. Hmm. And um, I found through writing and recording all my own like acapella music, like I would sing all the parts, do the beatboxing. Um, I I did a couple of school projects uh, through acapella music. And I was just spending hours in my dorm room obsessed over making these recordings and just loving it. And I found that I, it was my form of worship to the divine because I was majoring in music and I had to be involved in all this worship stuff at school that I just hated it, man. Like it (laughs) it was like, this is not the real thing. Like what we're doing in and of itself is not, not the problem, but it's the lack of authenticity behind what we're doing that that rubs me wrong. So without realizing it, I found an outlet to worship in my own way if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah. Me, me too. Me too. <laughs> I mean, I, I grew up uh, in the church and, and my wife and I eventually became worship leaders uh, at a church. And yeah, there was some, uh, we had a lot of freedom though in the first opportunity that we ever had to lead worship where we got to pick all the songs and, and, and just, just roll with it. We had a great time. It was, it was a wonderful time of, of learning. Um, but yeah. And, eventually though it's like you you do see that a lot of the christian music um some of it has some really bad theology like worm theology yes. you know it's just like worm i'm theology. a lowly worm you know yeah. and God, such you, a wretch as i yeah yeah 
um, this, this whole thing. And it's just like, Oh, it's so wrong. It's so wrong. When um, Jesus, he's like, Hey, lift your head, you know, come on. Um, yeah. I love you. I too have found uh, my own way of like worshiping the Lord through music. I'll take some songs like Hey Jude and I'll tweak the lyrics a little bit and kind of make right. it about Jesus and about him knocking on the door of our hearts and us letting him in and he, he makes mm -hmm. it better and this sort of thing. Yes. One of my favorite ones so far that I've done that with is Mrs. Robinson. And uh, instead uh. of Mrs. Robinson is yes, you are the one, you know, yeah. Uh, Jesus loves you more than you will know, you know, and, and this, yep. sort of, this sort of thing. I absolutely love, love that. Rewrote all the, the verses, um, you know, that uh, you've always been on his mind more than the grains of sand, you know, this sort of thing from well, scripture. When you're doing that though, that to me, that represents you really being able to see a deeper layer of God's reality where there is no separation. There's no, um, everything speaks of God. Everything, everything is singing God's praises, whether, whether we realize it or not. And so in a very real sense, any, any song or music that's written from a place of inspiration, you know, there's plenty of terrible songs that are just written to make money and don't, don't really have anything good to offer, but there's so many timeless classics, right. That speak to all of us. And, um, you can look at the, the message of the song, the lyrics of the song and see how it's speaking of God's truth. And once you see that, you're like, oh, everything is worshiping the creator. And so why would I stay locked into just one little modality of that? And you see that I can worship God through art, through dance, through um, yes. literally anything you're doing. If you see it as art and you see it as beauty, that is a form of worship. Yeah. And if you want to go real deep, like most recently, I have gotten into like drumming. I got a couple of hand drums and mm -hmm. I'll just jam with my friends. And so much fun. It is. It is a blast. And not only that, I mean, I was like connecting spiritually to things that, you know, were, things were just opening up to me in, in the spirit realm and I, and I, and dance too. Like I, like I've never been into dance <laughs> yeah. my whole life, but, but recently it's like, there was such freedom and release in this thing. And just like, you know, I was, it was even accompanied with visions and things. Uh, really amazing. Really amazing. Oh, yeah. Really freeing. That's, that's true worship right there. It is man. I think dance is one of the most powerful mediums for expression, worship. And for me, I've done a lot of self-healing through dance, you know, where if I'm feeling, uh, you know, really bogged down by something, you know, a trauma, painful memory, something I can't yeah. seem to, to heal. I'll, I'll put on music in my living room and just dance my heart out and just dance <laughs> with crazy. the intention of like, take this from me. You know, I don't want yeah. this anymore. Take this burden. And uh, it's such a powerful way of moving energy. Yeah. Awesome. That's what I was feeling too. And, you know, you talked about, you know, being stuck in these modalities, right. Um, of our, of how we, how Christian culture has become. Um, yes, it does need a reformation Christian culture at large for sure. Absolutely. Um, and a lot of what needs to happen is like a deconstruction, uh, an unlearning of, of some of the negative ways we've seen things and, and mm -hmm. things like that. And that can be very scary for people like, you know, um, Bibleolatry, for instance, mm -hmm. um, in, in recognizing that Jesus is the true word. He is perfect theology. Yeah. You know, this is one of the major revelations I got was like, Hey, we get to come into relationship with Christ. The one who is perfect theology. He's got all his ducks in a row. He knows what he's about. We're in relationship with him. We can love each other in the midst of that, if you're in connected, if you're connected with him, I'm connected with him, 
we can love each other right where we're at in our, in our, maybe in the, the still our immaturity and, and, and what we haven't released yet or haven't unlearned yet. We can love each other knowing that, Hey, the good shepherd's got you. He's, he's leading you on the path of truth. You've got the spirit of truth. Just like I do. We can love each other. Well, it really brings unity. That's what brings unity. It's the secret to unity. Yep. Yeah. It reminds me of um, first John in the beginning was the word and the word was made flesh and walked among us. It doesn't say the word was made scripture and put in a book or something. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the idea of God's truth being able to be contained in a book written at any point in history, even if it was today is equally as absurd as 2000, 4,000 years ago. The idea that, that eternal truth can be put down in language in any form is totally insane. And a mind that believes that it can is just the evidence of a mind that it needs healing, needs to, be, needs to understand the truth of reality, the truth of who God is. Um, it's approaching God from a conceptual framework. And again, concepts are symbols, right? Uh, words are, there's actually a line in The Course of Miracles that I love that says, let us not forget that words are merely symbols of symbols. Thus, they are twice removed from reality. Yeah. Meaning wow. words are symbols of ideas and ideas are symbols of reality. Mm-hmm. Or you could say God. Mm-hmm. So when I come up with an idea of God, like even if even something that's true, like God is love, right? Well, if I make that a concept that I, I cling to as if I know what it means now to say God is love because I have the concept. And then I say the words, God is love. And then the poof, the concept appears in my head and I go, oh, I understand God. I've just locked myself in such a tiny framework that now I can't relate to God outside of that framework anymore. Because when the mind creates a label, it's only able to relate to the label. And so that's why Jesus said, you must become like a little child. Uh, That original innocence, that childlike innocence, which really just represents awareness before concepts. Before I knew what God was, God was there. God was in me. I breathed God. I lived God. I moved in God. And I didn't even, I was almost even unaware of it. Children don't really have a concept that they're in joy, that they're in love, that they're in freedom. They just are. And so it's like, can I unlearn, like you said, my way back into that childlike innocence of knowing that, yes, God is love, but I really have no clue what that means conceptually. I can only experience it. Mm -hmm. Oh, and I have experienced it. And it it heals relationships. It brings forgiveness Mm -hmm. like that. You know, that's what it did for me. Um, when I've experienced the love of God and it's infinitude. I mean, of course, uh, yeah. I was just, it, it, I was, I was experiencing ever increasing, uh, you know, uh, layers of his love. And I saw that it was infinite. And I'm like, if I experience one more drop of this, I'm going to explode into many yeah. pieces, <laughs> you know, experiencing the love of God up to that extent. Like, yeah. Wow. I and felt it, that too. That's amazing, dude. Yeah. It's so profound. It is. And it, and it, and it hooks you for life. Cause you're like, there it is. I tasted and I saw <laughs> yeah. God, you know, it humbles you like, Oh gosh, here I was walking around with this extreme arrogance. Like I knew God. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. I experienced some layer of God that was totally outside of my reference frame that blew the doors off what I thought I knew. And then you have this understanding, like that was only one tiny shred of what God is. Mm-hmm. And God's so outside oh, my box gosh. that it's like, let me just walk with total humility, this, this understanding that I don't know anything. And yeah. that's what actually opens me to ex- new experiences of God. Yeah. 
<laughs> and one of my best friends, uh, his name's Nicholas. He uh, came up with this phrase. He says, look outside of the box and you'll find the light. Look outside of the light and you'll find a box. And so <laughs> that's so deep. I'm like, he got the nickname Pope Nicholas for that one. So, <laughs> wow. Nice. I like that. Um, yeah. Way to go, Nicholas. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, but what I'd like to talk about next, we're going to dive into just near death experiences. Cause that's been both part of our, part of both of our journeys mm -hmm. is, is just, um, well, how near death experiences, uh, and researching them has changed our, changed our viewpoint of reality. Uh, yeah. Like uh, how, how big of a part of it has been, has it been in, in your journey and like what have been the biggest takeaways for you? It was, it was a profound part of my journey for sure. When I left the church, I moved back to Oklahoma where I'd been at college. Uh, I knew a lot of people there and everything. So went back to Oklahoma and just decided to start all over and, you know, search for truth my own way through my heart, just what would resonate with me. Um, I had this conviction, like if truth exists and God is truth, then I don't need to fear being deceived right? Because if I really want truth, I'll, uh, my heart will know if something's not true. Like I'm not looking to feel special anymore. I'm not looking yeah. to be a part of a group that makes me feel included or accepted. Like I already had that and I rejected that. All I want is to know what's true, whatever that is, even if it's not something that I want to accept. Yeah. So I just began searching. And for a while, I, you know, when I deconstructed the Christian view of God, it was terrifying because that was the only box I had got in. The only way I related to God was through this Christian framework. And when I, when I saw that the Christian version of God I'd been presented with wasn't real, then to me that was God in totality wasn't real. So this mm. fear developed of like, oh shit, what if atheism is true? You know, like what if there isn't a God? And oh no, it was just, it was terrifying to me. What was most terrifying about it was the idea of there being no eternity, like when my mom dies, she's gone. I lose her. She's, I'll never get her back. When my dad's dead, all the love I've ever felt, the relationship, it's you know, ground into dust and blown away by the wind. You know, those kinds of thoughts were what terrified me. So because of that, I plunged into NDEs. Hmm. Uh, I'd had you know, a few videos I'd seen over the years and stories I'd heard of people that died and had these crazy experiences. So I went, all right, if there's truth about life or God or the afterlife, it's going to be there most likely. So I found this website, nderf.org, uh, near death experience research foundation mm -hmm. made by a couple of scientists in the like late nineties, I think who basically said, Oh, you know, let's, let's look into this phenomenon of NDEs and see if there's any relevancy or truth to it. If there's any, uh, consistency or similarity between these stories. Right. So they started collecting the data of people's NDE accounts and they, they made sure that like these are verified NDEs, like you've had a doctor or a person that was there that verified this experience happened. So people can't just log on and make up bullshit, right? So I started reading them and I was reading, you know, two, three hours a day probably um, for about six months. So I think I probably read at least a thousand NDEs. And the reason I kept reading is because I could not believe the striking similarities. It's like everyone had... in. Everyone had a completely unique experience, but in a sense, everyone had the same experience. Kind of like if everybody went to France, they would all say, oh, I saw an Eiffel Tower. I saw this, I saw that. People spoke this language, it sounded like this. 
but yeah, they all had a different experience, right? But the, the context of where they went was the same. And so things like uh, having an out-of-body experience when they died, you know, floating above their body and watching their body, um, feeling a, a sense of total peace about it. Like they weren't afraid of the fact that they were out of their body, but it actually felt good to them. And they looked at their body with almost like a curiosity of like, oh, wow, that was what I thought was me at one point. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, going to the light, having a life review and all these other things we can get into. I saw that, okay, there's no possible way that thousands, I mean, they have hundreds of thousands of NDEs on there. And about 90% of them, from their statistics at least, include all these same themes, have these same commonalities. Do I, is it realistic to say that they're all in on it together? They're all making it up to feel special about themselves or whatever. It's like, there's no possible way humans could pull off such a huge um, scam like that. There must be some truth to it. Mm -hmm. And I think that the skeptical scientific mind would say, and I've heard say, well, it's, it must be uh, an experience that has evolved in the brain. So like we all have the same things happen, which is a way that the brain helps you cope with the fear of dying, right? Hmm. And that's the, the best argument I've ever heard against NDEs being real. And to me, it's just such an incredibly silly argument. Um, it's kind of like the idea of like, you know, let's say a giraffe, right? A, a giraffe um, has a mechanism in its neck where when it bends down to drink water, um, the blood flow gets stopped, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Because if it didn't have that, it's like blood would rush to its head and it would explode. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, evolution puts this in place to keep the giraffe from killing itself. Um, and so it's like life is seeking to prolong life. Like once life, once the physical body dies, what is there left to protect? The evolution only knows of the physical reality, of the physical matter of the body. So it's like, why is why would it evolve a mechanism to protect itself from non-existence? It wouldn't have a concept of non-existence. All it knows is physical reality. So like, I don't see any substance there. So through NDEs, I, I started thinking about these questions and it gave me so much peace of mind again and really uh, a firm belief that, okay, there is an intelligence, uh, a force, an essence, uh, a source of life as these people would describe it, you know, the source, the light. And it is loving. It is benevolent because not because it's just like a nice guy, like Christianity sort of presents God as God's not just like in a good mood eternally, but God is oneness. God is love, which is, Mm -hmm. uh, which is harmony, which is unity. And that made a lot of sense to me. It resonated in my heart. And so I think that that muted all of those existential fears that came up from losing my religion, which if you haven't ever left a religion or a cult or something, you know, you can't possibly imagine the level of fear and anxiety it brings to mm-hmm. dis- deconstruct something that is the whole essence or foundation of your concept of self. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And for me, for me too, uh, near death experiences played a big role in my awakening, my journey toward awakening, I should say, because we're all still on a journey toward awakening mm-hmm. <laughs> more and more awakening. It's kind of, I kind of liken it to, you know, the guy who got healed by Jesus and, and then he saw people like trees walking around. He needs a further stage of healing. And I think we all do as long as we're still here. Right. Um, as far as our, our blindness goes to what's mm-hmm. real and, uh, and what God is really all about, 
who Christ truly is, how mm-hmm. all-encompassing he is. You know, you, you mentioned earlier, even in uh, your, your talk about um, you're struggling with the religious aspects of, of what's put forward in Christian dogma, uh, especially in regards to, to, to hell, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, I, just, I just posted something to the Christian Mystic Facebook page here, uh, shared by a, a friend of mine. Uh, posse of online spiritual misfits <laughs> and uh, he he shared about uh, universal restoration and I absolutely love this yeah I, I don't know if I have time to read it all but I can certainly provide a link in the uh, below mm-hmm. but this to me has been a, a great hope that's that's been introduced you know from scripture I'm finding this in the Bible you can find these verses even even uh, the verses that Oh, you know, that, that mm, those who believe in, um, what is it? Uh, eternal conscious torment. Right. The, the verses that they would point to, there's like, there's like three solid verses that they would point to. But if mm-hmm. you look at even what the word eternal, how we, how it's been translated or mistranslated, you know, um, it, it, I actually have this, this, uh, and, uh, gosh, my, brain is not working the best today <laughs> i'm actually not i'm going off of coffee so that kind of like you know oh gosh that's rough. That. i know yeah i had a headache all last night so uh <laughs> you're in the withdrawal phase man i'm in the withdrawal phase <laughs> you get the shakes here soon <laughs> yes but but uh i i just picked up this new uh new testament uh who put it out i'm trying to think of his name right now but he, like the mirror he, bible uh it's not that it's um Let's see. Uh, I can't think of his name right now, but I'll, again, well, I'll put that in the link below and in the description of this video for anybody who's wondering. But um, he translated as age-lasting ch- chastisement, eternal mm. punishment being age-lasting chastisement yes. for the chastisement of the age to come. Which is, is a much more accurate it is. translation. It is. And when, when you start to see it this way and you're like, oh my gosh, universal restoration this could, this could be the way it is. And I, I firmly believe it is actually now. Well, you man, know. there are just an incredible amount of verses in the Bible that speak of universalism and like pull no punches at all. Like mm-hmm. I, it's so funny when I was going through that phase, I would, I would ask a lot of my fundamentalist friends, like, what do you do with this verse? And they literally, like, what was the one I would always use? Um, verses like, I don't know the reference, first Corinthians something um, as in Adam, all men died. So also in Christ, all shall be made alive. They're like, who confess him? I'm like, great, cool. Doesn't say that though. You're adding to scripture. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what do you do and, with just the and verse? And when Jesus says, when I'm lifted up, I will draw all men to myself, you know? Yeah, every I, knee will bow. Yeah, yeah. Every, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And, and, and in, you, you see this like, well, what about the afterlife? When you pass on, it says, you know, it's appointed for man once to die and after that, the judgment. Well, what is that judgment? Guess what? The word for judgment there is a restorative thing. It's, mm-hmm. a, it's a reconciling thing. And I literally had an experience with God one morning. And this, just, this is what really kind of firmed me up in this direction was he, uh, I woke up and I really truly would say, Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, Daniel, have you considered the curative and restorative qualities of hell? Mm-hmm. And I was like, 
Wow. Okay. And so this has been part of what Sozo Talk Radio has been going after. I've been interviewing people uh, like William Paul Young. We talk about how right. wrath is an expression of God's love. Mm-hmm. You know, at the end of the day, it's a firm no against all that harms us, you know, mm-hmm. and, and he seeks to remove all that is not of love's kind from our being. And that yeah. could be painful if you're clinging to those things that are not of love's kind. If you're clinging, it's going to be painful when it's pride from your grip, you know, and, mm-hmm. and you know, you're exposed and uh, even being exposed is a, is, a, is a tough thing for a lot of people, you know, to, to go through that. What's the verse in Revelation about the lake of fire? It says um, that all the fundamentalists use. Um, yeah. It says like. Uh, all those not written in the Lamb's book of life. Um, yeah. Uh, and their smoke goes up forever and ever. And it, it says that, I think it says the devil and, and even hell are thrown into the lake of fire. Yeah. Right. And it says, uh, and their smoke the fire of purification or something, their smoke goes up forever and ever. But I, I watched um, a video about a, it was a, uh, like a hermeneuticist or whatever, a linguist, biblical linguist who was doing a breakdown of that verse. And they said, this is just an embarrassingly horrible translation of this verse. Hmm. They said, what, what this verse actually means. And I always think it's funny when a fundamentalist would bring that verse up to say, well, what do you do about this verse? The lake of fire. Like, well, it says hell is thrown into the lake of fire. So what do you do about that? Right. But the translation is actually um, the Gilder's crucible is what it actually says. Hmm. And the Gilder's crucible was a um, way that they purified the gold that they were making. They put it in the Gilder's crucible that burns up the impurity. So the gold's pure when it comes out. And so it's, it's talking about a purification, which is why it says the devil and his angels and hell itself are thrown into the Gilder's crucible. And uh, this, it says the smoke of their purification goes up for the age hmm. until the aeonios, right? In Greek, the yes. end of the age. So it yes. does not speak of eternity. It does not speak of um, a lake of fire. It's a gilder's crucible, which anyone back then would have understood what that was referencing. But as time goes forward and the uh, cultural, you know, syncrasies of things are less understood, then the, there's more room for misinterpretation. And that's, you know, a big problem with the, the Bible we have today in English is it's been translated so many times and it's so far removed from the original writing that, um, I mean, for God's sakes, they, they use the word hell instead of the Valley of Hinnom. Yeah. yeah. Like that's such a disrespect to the text to do that. It's true. It is a disrespect. Um, and to but, Jesus. And some, some people are getting it right though. They're bringing it back, you know? Um, yep. And, um, uh, and that's, that's refreshing. Uh, These things are coming into the light now. They are. Everyone's talking about it. Because what we do have, we do have a, a reconstructed original. You know, when the original copies were made of, of the apostles' writings, they were dispersed. And we, what we've, we have a reconstructed original. But like how we're rendering that, them uh, appropriate to the culture and, and to whom it was written and, and all that... And, nuances like like you just said the gilder's crucible for instance this is the first i've heard about that i was going to reference to the end of revelation the hope that is offered there where it says outside are you know the dogs the sorcerers this, this and that or whatever outside the gate but those who wash their robes in the lamb's blood are granted entrance you know uh-huh. and, and and that invitation is is extended to them and where the spirit and the bride say come come 
you know, <laughs> to all these right. evil people, wash your robes in the lamb's blood and you're, you're in, you know, it's like, yeah. And, and, in the, and yeah, so there's so much hope in that regard. And, and I love it. I absolutely love it. I mean, the Bible becomes completely new and vibrant and beautiful and alive with truth when you deconstruct all of the old dogmas and philosophies you were taught that it meant and you let the Bible like, okay, I'm not going to say this book was written by the hand of God. Take that label off. This book is perfect. Take that label off. Just read the book and feel what it's saying in your heart. And all of a sudden it becomes alive. And you say, you know, as somebody who used to say, well, the Bible's not the inspired word of God. I don't believe that anymore. I came back to this new understanding of it saying, actually, this book is deeply inspired. And what it means to say inspired is actually completely different than what I thought before anyways. And it's true in a much deeper way than I thought it was before, just like Christ is. Yeah. Yeah. Much more beautiful way. And I, I just came across the uh, translation I was mentioning earlier, David Bentley Hart. Yes. He's a religion scholar. Um, and he, uh, he put forward a translation that was, that was, he, he sought to keep it free from all doctrine as if doctrine wasn't given. You know, yes. not interpreting it through the lens of doctrine at all. No bias. No bias. And he does a really fun job of it. Because I say fun because he's not afraid to use archaic words sometimes. Right. <laughs> so, which makes it kind of a fun read. You know, like, like uh, one verse in Jude, my wife and I were joking about um, lavishing your obsequiousness upon my personage. You know, <laughs> he'll, he'll, he'll render things like that. Sometimes it's, it's, it's fun, you yeah. know, and, and some people give him a, a little bit of grief about that, but um, that basically means flattering uh, people for financial gain, you know, in the end, you know? Right. So, but, uh, but yeah, the, he has huge notes about the word eternal and the way he's used it as, uh, as being, as re referring to ages. And by yes. the way, we would want to spare anyone from the, the suffering or that chastisement of that age. I mean, Jesus certainly wants to spare people from that chastisement of an age, you know? Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning into this first half of an interview with Aaron Opke. If you're curious about the second half where we touch on subjects uh, like reincarnation and Christ consciousness, please subscribe uh, so you can stay tuned and notified for when that comes out. Uh, I just wanted to touch also on this topic of hell since we brought it up. Um, that I was referencing earlier David Bentley Hart's translation of the New Testament uh, specifically in the end of uh, Matthew, Matthew 25, I believe it is. And he's talking to those who fail in their show of love, ultimately. And he says, And these will go to the chastening of that age, but the just to the life of that age. So, uh, eternal... Uh, being defined here as the age, an age, whatever that age looks like, however long that, that is. And then uh, the word for punishment. Okay, the word that, that, that is how it's most often translated in most other translations is eternal punishment. 
that will go away into eternal punishment, as most translations puts it. So David Bentley Hart has rightly pointed out that the, even the word for punishment there is a, is a correcting word. It's colossus. At, by the way, any time, and, and this has been pointed out by William Paul Young and others that I've interviewed on my show, Sozo Talk Radio, Anytime the word punishment is, is talked about in terms of God, it's referring to a corrective, uh, a restorative justice, um, a chastening, um, a pruning that's happening, uh, where all that is not of love's kind is being removed. It's, it's purgatorial in, in effect, right? So that's that, and I uh, just hope that, hope that helps. Also, I wanted to point out, even in the book of Mark, you know, it talks about in chapter 9, there's some very severe warnings here, okay? I mean, these are not to be taken lightly, and, and we don't. We don't take these lightly. You know, where, where it says, And whoever causes one of these little ones who have faith to falter, it is better for him to have a millstone, one of the kind turned by an ass, Here's here's David Bentley Hart kind of all right hung about his neck and be thrown into the sea, and if your hand causes you to falter, cut it off. It is good for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go away into the vale of Hinnom, into the inextinguishable fire where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. And that is a quote, by the way. Uh, the valley, the Vale of Hinnom, right? This is the the Valley of Hinnom. This is Gehenna. Um, it's a reference to the the judgment that was coming that Jesus was warning the Jewish people of in AD seventy, where I don't know how many Jewish people were slaughtered. Um, we should do our research more about about what happened in AD seventy because. It seems to uh, it seems to fulfill a lot of the prophecies that even Jesus spoke about. Okay, and he, so he says, and if your eye causes you to falter, fling it away. It is good for you to enter one-eyed into the kingdom of God, rather than having two eyes to be cast into the vale of Hinnom, where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt loses saltiness, with what will you season it? Keep salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. That was from Mark 9. David Bentley Hart's translation here. Everyone will be salted with fire. And it reminds me of something I've read in 1 Corinthians 3, where it talks about our works being tested. It talks about there's no foundation that's been laid uh, except the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we build on that foundation and the, that anything we build with will be tested by fire. But then there's this phrase. He says, um, if anyone's work should be burned away, he will suffer loss, yet he shall be saved, though so as by fire. Okay. So Jesus has been referred to as the refiner's fire. Um, so there you have it. I'd encourage you to check out my uh, my interviews with Brad Jerzak. We dive into more uh, talking about hell, and uh, he treats it very fairly. Um, uh, in his book, "Her Gates Will Never Be Shut," 
and talks about the hope that we have. Uh, me and Brad Jerzak talk a lot about that in, in a couple of interviews I have with him. Uh, so keep your eye out for those. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this first half of the talk with Aaron Opke. Again, uh, stay tuned for the next installment coming soon. Peace out.